welcome to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Adele King, certified nutritionist and holistic women's health expert. Here, we'll cover all topics related to nutrition, women's health, hormones, self-development, and personal growth. I'm here to guide you on your journey to balancing your hormones, loving your menstruation, cycle syncing, and living your best life. Now let's get into it. Episode, I am speaking with Dr. Carly Crew. Dr. Carly is a mom to twin toddlers, modern day nomad, and a Canadian trained MD psychotherapist specializing in women's mental health. Dr. Carly Crew focuses on an integrative approach that addresses the multidimensional reality of mental health, combining her knowledge of eclectic psychotherapeutic modalities, including CBT, DBT, holding and coaching techniques with experience in both integrative modalities, nutritional psychiatry, and psychotherapeutics to provide a unique, holistic, and comprehensive approach to the treatment of mental illness. She is also the CEO of Unoya Medical, an innovative virtual women's mental health clinic. She hosts the five-star rated podcast called Mind Over Motherhood, and she has a book called You Are Not Your Anxiety. Welcome to the podcast, Carly. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm really excited to be here and speak to your listener. It's going to be fun. I think so too. I just, even going through your bio, it's it's very impressive. And so I would love it if we could just start off with your story, if you feel comfortable sharing about your experience with twins and mental health post-twins and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Um, So I have always been really fascinated by the brain um, and mental health and how the brain works, like even before I became a doctor. And um, and in fact, when I applied to medical school, I remember saying my backup plan is I'll go and get a master's degree and become a therapist because it was something I was just really always fascinated with, being able to work with people to you know, work through some of their issues, see things in a different way, all those sorts of things. And so then I was accepted to medical school and fell in love with family practice, um, the diversity of being able to help women with lots of, well, not even women, but everyone with lots of different everyday issues. I remember that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, if I was going to be a doctor, I wanted to be somebody who could help with a lot of things, basically. And I fell in love with family practice, trained as a rural family doctor. And, um, and about nine months into my practice, got pregnant. We were pregnant with twins. Um, and my pregnancy was very good. Um, it was very, I was very grateful and, and lucky that it was relatively low risk and, um, and went on to be induced to have a beautiful set of twin girls. And it was shortly after that, that like the crushing mental illness kind of set in and it, it was a bit of a turning point in my life. Now looking back, obviously in the midst of it, it was not. Um, and for probably about nine months, I struggled pretty severely with postpartum anxiety um, and um, and struggled a lot with perfectionism and people pleasing. And it took me probably, I would say about nine months to, to really start to explore some different healing methods for myself, to access the right resources um, and to recover from that. And when I came out of it, I had this newfound passion. I'd always loved the brain, like I said, in mental health and, and, um, but I had a newfound passion for helping women through that, through that experience that I had been through. And, um, and in a way that I needed, but hadn't found when I needed it, right? So I really had, I wouldn't say struggled to find the right support. I had great supports, but you know, it's really hard when you're a new mom and you're trying to go to therapy. 
and you have to like lug these two new babies or what, right. Or how you get away from that when you're feeding them. And it's just like all those dynamics, um, struggled to find somebody who could really relate to what I was experiencing, who knew what it was like to have anxiety and how all encompassing it can be and how all consuming it can be. Um, and a variety of different things, right? Somebody who could not just talk to me about therapy and meds, but who could also talk to me about how I was eating, how I was sleeping, was I exercising? What was my spirituality? Like all these different aspects that definitely impact our mental health, but we don't always see in the traditional medical paradigm. And, um, and so I started doing that. I started exploring some different ways that I could help women more. And I started with coaching in 2019 and, um, tried to do some mental health coaching with women online. And that didn't really feel like a fit, necessarily. Um, and then I, um, I went back to my practice. I'd never left family practice. And I said, well, why don't I just start seeing more women and learn some more therapy skills and incorporate some more therapy skills into, into my kind of skill set as a physician. And I started doing that and I started seeing, you know, like in the neighborhood of hundreds of women with mental health issues across their lifespan. Right. So not even just postpartum mental illness, but a lot of women came to me with issues around perfectionism and a lot of anxiety and people pleasing and even some trauma and different things. And so I've expanded my scope to, to help with a lot of those issues. And then in early 20, no, sorry, late 2020, my husband and I were, were nomadic. Like we loved to travel. We, um, had had a plan to sell all of our things, including our big, beautiful dream house that I thought I had wanted, um, and move into a motorhome and move into an, uh, a, an RV. And we'd had that plan for basically the last three years, we'd been slowly working towards it, but it just never seemed to fit with how I was supposed to be working right in one place with one group of people all the time in one practice, like the traditional kind of way that you doctor basically. And so, um, I, late 2020 kind of like a bolt of lightning, like why don't I create something virtual online where I can help women in my doctor capacity uh, with their mental health and then I could travel, right? How amazing would that be? And so I started Unoya Medical on January 4th, 2021. (laughs) And four days later, my waiting list was like over 60 women. And I was like, holy smokes, like this is not going to work. I can't do this and be a mom and do, you know, I have a podcast like you mentioned and I wrote a book and variety of things. Um, and so my very smart husband at the time was like, maybe you should see if anybody else wants to do this with you. Like, maybe you want to see if any other doctors want to do this. And, um, and so I started asking around and I've basically grown the team now to to 12 physicians in about nine months. So we're like a massive team now and we're helping almost 300 women with their mental health on an ongoing basis. And it's just incredible. Like it's, it's been an incredible experience to build something that's so, um, fueled by my own passion and what I want to leave as a legacy. And, um, and that's kind of where we are now. So I do a variety of different things and it all was fueled basically from this experience that I had that I really wanted to help women through. And it's grown into this massive empire that I'm so proud of. So. Wow. That's truly incredible. And just growing to a team so large and growing so quickly. And um, I'm just curious to just touch on postpartum for a little bit and postpartum mental challenges. So I'm just curious, well, one, how many people experience this postpartum mental challenges? And typically, when does it show up after postpartum? And how long can someone struggle with it? 
Mm-hmm. Really good questions. So I'm not sure exactly what the statistics for the U.S. are. Um, I, I, I believe the estimates are somewhere between 4 and 8% of new moms, but I think that's probably considerably higher than that, um, who struggle with some form of postpartum mood disruption, I call it, or what I often refer to it as is postpartum distress, right? Because you don't necessarily have to have a clinical mood disorder to still have some struggles after becoming a mom because becoming a mother is such a giant life transition that it's inevitable that your mental health in some way, shape or form is going to be impacted, whether it's through your biology, whether it's through the fatigue that you experience with a new baby, whether it's through birth trauma or, you know, the host of things that can happen when we transition and are birthed as mothers. So, um, there's a spectrum of post, like from a clinical sense, from my doctor world, there's a spectrum of postpartum mood disorder, right? So most people can identify with something called the baby blues, which are a collection of self-limited symptoms that usually onset within the first two weeks after birth. And the keyword being self-limited, right? That they would go away after a brief period of time. That's usually two to four weeks that they would go away and a woman would feel a little bit more like herself. And baby blues can look like feeling a little more weepy than usual, feeling kind of mixed up emotions, like you're so blissfully happy, but all you want to do is cry because it's so exhausting. And, you know, sometimes there's some sleep disruption. Sometimes you can find yourself having, um, you know, a little bit more anger, irritability because you're tired. But all of these things in, are, are less severe than what a postpartum mood disorder would qualify as, right? So then if those symptoms extend beyond, say, the early postpartum period, two to four weeks, and are reaching more around two months, three months, or onward, and are significantly impacting a woman's life. So I would say the symptoms are more in the moderate to severe realm. There may be more symptoms. She may have feelings of kind of um, a lack of self-confidence, a second guessing, which all women second guess whether they should have been mothers at some point, but a significant like proportion of the time wondering, what have I done? Like, has this been a big mistake? I'm not fit to be a mother. These sorts of kind of irrational thoughts that come from feelings of depression and anxiety, um, an irrational level of worry and a difficult to control level of worry. Um, a lot of women identify with postpartum rage. And that's something that's not spoken about a lot is that I've had women come to me being like, I had no idea I would be so angry all the time. And I can attest to that because like we don't have a baby monitor anymore because my kids are five. But um, like for the longest time, our baby monitor was broken. The back of it was broken because I had thrown it against the wall, right? Because I was in, in a fit of postpartum rage, right? Because it was just not myself. I remember myself feeling very despondent, very like things felt very futile. Um, like I was trapped. I would never feel my way out of this. I would never get back to myself. There was a big sense of grieving about what I had done to myself becoming a mother, right? Like a lot of these really painful emotions and experiences. And so when you're tipping into those areas where it's really starting to impact your function, it's impacting your ability to relate to baby and bond with your baby. um, Then we start to wonder, is this meeting criteria for a clinical postpartum mood disorder? And I say mood disorder because we always hear postpartum depression, But I kind of like to change the term to mood disorder because a lot of women will tell me, I don't feel depressed. Like, I don't feel like I'm sad all the time. In fact, it's more like uncontrollable worry. It's uncontrollable rage. It's like these irrational thoughts. Sometimes women have really scary postpartum thoughts. What if I drop my baby and its head cracks open? And then they go, oh my God, like, why did I just think that? What kind of mother am I? 
right? And these sorts of thoughts are actually super common for new parents and new moms. And so, um, so that, like I said, it's a bit of a spectrum. To answer your question on how long it can go on, they can go on, you can have undiagnosed postpartum mood disorder that just continues through much of your early motherhood experience, right? So you could have, um, they say that symptoms are diagnosed within the first year to qualify as a postpartum mood disorder. But if I ever see a woman in my office who's like, I've been feeling like this for three years since the birth of my kid, you know, the question is, is it just postpartum mood disorder that's now mutated into regular mood disorder, like run-of-the-mill depression and anxiety? Um, we treat them more or less the same way. So I don't know if it's necessarily that critical to distinguish between those two things. But I think that's a long overview of what you asked me. I hope I answered all the questions. Yes, that's perfect. And I'm just curious, too, in terms of a little bit more broad, what exactly is mental health? What is mental health? That's a really good question. And I think that it's hard to define it in a way that would apply to everyone. However, I believe um, mental health is when you have a predominant feeling of satisfaction, happiness, peace, um, when you feel like you are to a degree... um, an active agent in your life rather than life is happening to you and you are just kind of like constantly at the whims of life happening or constantly at the whims of other people. You have a sense of, I hesitate to use the word control because if anybody listening is a perfectionist, they're like, I love control. Um, but you know, you have a sense of, of control and that you have a direction with your life and you have a passion and a purpose to your life right? Which is a long non-Webster dictionary type of definition of mental health. But I think it's so such a multifaceted thing to say, what, how would you define mental health? Because for some people, it may be, I have a healthy spirituality. For some people, it may be, I feel so physically well in my body because I, I nourish my body with, you know, really positive, amazing foods and, um, and things that make me feel really good. Or it might be, I f- I'm physically fit. I exercise regularly. That's my mental health. Or I have really positive social connections in my life. That's my mental health. And so I think defining what mental health is, is really individualized. Mm, perfect. I love that you touched on a wide variety from you know, feeling active or nourishing your body or just having a purpose in life. So that's absolutely wonderful. And I'm curious if you know the stats on this of how many people experience mental health issues and then how many people go undiagnosed, basically. (laughs) I think everyone experiences mental health issues. I think it's 100%. I don't know what the statistics would be, but my inkling is like 100% of people at some point in their life will experience some degree of a mental health challenge. That doesn't mean that you're diagnosed with a mental illness. That doesn't mean that you have a clinical disorder, but that at some point you're going to have a day where, or a couple days or a couple weeks where you're feeling more low. You're not feeling like yourself. And I think that, again, statistics are hard depending on like whether it's global statistics, Canadian statistics, American statistics. It's really hard to see how many people go undiagnosed because those are the ones we don't speak to. I do know that obviously mental illness is more undiagnosed in men than women. Thankfully, as women, we tend to have more help-seeking behaviors, not always, but we tend to have more help-seeking behaviors. So that leads us to get help sooner when we are struggling, thank goodness. Um, and then, but, but in terms of how many people are actually undiagnosed, I think a lot of people are walking around with mental health issues without even realizing it themselves, let alone, I don't think people are walking around thinking like, I don't feel good and I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't think that's everyone. I think a lot of people are walking around unaware that maybe how they're living in their brain is actually not that healthy, but because it's all that they know, 
They don't know that it could be better. I have so many clients who say, God, I had no idea how unwell I was until I got better. Wow. That's really powerful. And what are some, I'm just curious, what are some habits and behaviors of someone who is experiencing mental health issues? Is it that they're struggling with perfectionism? I know anxiety and depression are huge. And so what are some, some habits and behaviors that you've noticed? So it depends on what you're speaking about, right? Because if, if when we're talking about mental health issues, say, we could talk about, are you feeling predominantly depressed? Like, are you struggling with depression? Are you feeling um, more anxiety? Or do you have like a mental, like a psychiatric diagnosis, right? So like your question is quite broad, but I'll try to speak to some of the more common things that I see in clients that present to my clinic, what some of the things are that they are coming to get support with, right? Um, and so often women specifically as your audience is largely women. So I will speak to women. Um, often there's a sense of not ever being able to shut your brain off. So having a really busy brain that no matter what you do, even if they're completely illogical, irrational thoughts that you can't seem to catch yourself and kind of snap out of those thought vortexes, I call them. Um, and, and, and your brain has a tendency to catastrophize, right? Like you think one tiny thing and all of a sudden it's going to be the worst thing that ever happened to you. That's a really common thing I have. I have patients present with an inability to regulate emotion is a big one, which that's not how people present. They don't walk in and say, I have an inability to regulate emotion. They often say I get really angry and I snap at my kids and I don't like that I do that right? So anger and irritability is a really common thing that I find in um, of a, as a symptom of people presenting with, with mental health concerns. Um, difficulty sleeping is a big one. So insomnia, um, you know, whether it's difficult to fall asleep, waking frequently at night or waking too early in the morning. Sometimes it's a lot of physical manifestations. So I'm a big, huge believer in the mind-body connection and the gut-brain access. And um, and so a lot of the times my clients will also present with their, you know, cognitive or their mental health challenges, but in the background or as part of their presentation is also a lot of like gut disturbance, constipation, bloating, diarrhea, maybe joint aches, excessive fatigue, headache, muscle ache, right? Neck pain, all these sorts of things that are um, somatic manifestations of their their, their brain not feeling good and thereby their body not feeling good. Right. So those are some, you know, I could go on for days of all the things that people that with, but, but that's a kind of a good little overview of some of the more common things that I see. Perfect. I'm glad that you took that very broad subject and then narrowed it down a little bit by some common th- feelings that people might be experiencing. So with that, I would love to go even a bit more narrow and just kind of touch on the two main topics that we hear the most about, which is anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And so can you describe what they are and the difference between them? Sure. So I will say first as well that anxiety and depression are often what we call comorbid, meaning you don't necessarily have to just have one or the other. You can have more tendencies towards anxiety and those anxious feelings constantly, chronic anxious feelings can lead you to feel more depressive, right? Lead you to feel having a low mood. So um, while people will sometimes be diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which is a disorder. And they sometimes will be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Again, a clinical disorder. It's very common that people will have kind of symptoms that overlap in both areas. Okay. So, and I think that's important because people will sometimes try to self-diagnose and be like, I need to know what I have before I go see a provider to get support. And it's like, well, you might have a little bit of everything. And I don't know if it's entirely necessary all the time to box you into one typical label, right? Like you, I always see my patients as holistic beings that are struggling 
as a whole being, right? I'm not like, let's define exactly the one thing. Now, that being said, what are the characteristics of anxiety? Characteristics of anxiety are a sense of never really being able to relax. It feels as though you're on edge all the time. You're tense. You feel like you might always feel like the other shoe is going to drop. Because of that, your brain is very busy. It's constantly looking for the next threat. And this is all regulated by our limbic system and our, you know, sympathetic nervous system, vagus nerve, all that sort of stuff, which I won't go into. But basically, it's as if you're living in a chronically elevated, heightened, activated state where you have a lot of stress hormones running through your body a lot. And this will lead your brain to be really busy thinking anxious thoughts. Um, You may struggle to concentrate. You may struggle to maintain your patience. You may struggle to do fine tasks where require a lot of focus and attention because you're frequently distracted by intrusive anxious thoughts. Anxiety specifically tends to be more associated with lacking of sleep or struggling to fall asleep because you can't shut that brain off. It's just constantly on high alert. Um, sometimes patients with anxiety feel a lot of fatigue because they're almost in this chronic cortisol state where their body is kind of burning out. And so they're really jazzed up and really keyed up, but also really tired all the time. They often have muscle tension in their neck and shoulders because they're living in that like tightened, activated state as if they're preparing to fight off a bear all the time kind of idea. Um, and, and sometimes there can be a lability of mood where you're like, I'm good as long as nothing happens. And then you can have one thing happen and all of a sudden you're crushed into this like really hard, low mood that you struggle to call out of. Right. So that's really common in both depression and anxiety on the depression side. I tend to see it more as if the anxiety is like the, the engine is revving up. I thought the um, the depressive state is more that the engine is revving down, right? Like you're in just like a lower gear. So instead, patients like this might struggle to get out of bed because they're really tired. They don't wake feeling rested. It seems like they can't get enough sleep. They may sleep more often. Um, they may want to change their diet in terms of like they might be lacking appetite, not have an appetite. So they might not be eating that much. Or in contrast, some people have emotional responses and eat more when when they're feeling depressed, right? So you might find yourself binging, sitting on the couch, just like kind of watching Netflix, endlessly eating ice cream or something is one example. Um, you, Your mood, I often ask clients to tell me, how does your mood feel? Do you feel down or up? Really simple. Like, do you feel like you're in a good mood? Like you're happy? Or do you feel sad all the time? Do you feel sad or futile or hopeless or despondent or, um, you know, disconnected from yourself and others? right? So what is your mood like? Because if, if you're feeling those things, that's more of a depressive type feel, right? Uh, you might feel sluggish in your body. Your body might be achy. Your digestive might, digestion might be slowed. You might feel constipated, right? So there's a lot of like these feelings of, of, um, of slowing down, right? And, um, and less of that activated, I'm preparing for a flight all the time. It's almost like I'm just like done. That's how a depression often feels is I just can't do anything else. I'm so tired. I'm so down. I'm so depleted. We lack motivation when we're depressed. We lack focus and the ability to concentrate when we're depressed. We might lose interest or enjoyment in things that we previously found really enjoyable. So these are all signs to watch for on either spectrum. And like I said, you can have a combination of these things. So you can still feel super keyed up and want to sleep all the time. Right. So, you know, so, so it can definitely be a combination of these, of, of all of these symptoms and more, this is not an exhaustive list, but um, of course, when we think about depression and any kind of mood disorder, the most important ones to talk about would be, you know, if you're having any symptoms of, I don't want to be here anymore. 
right? Or I would just be better off dead or others would be better off without me. Like those those suicidal or even passive escape thoughts, I call them, or self-harm thoughts, those are huge red flag features, right? So if anybody listening to this is experiencing any of those symptoms, those are ones that we don't want to mess around with. We definitely want you to be seen by a provider, you know, a licensed mental health practitioner or, you know, physician or mental health provider, or, um, health professional is what I'm trying to say, who can help you get the help you need urgently. Because those are definitely more red flag features that we don't really want you sitting around trying to fix yourself. It's important to get professional help at that time. Wonderful. I'm glad you mentioned that you can experience a combo because that was definitely going to be one of my questions (laughs) is if you can experience both at the same time. So I'm glad you touched on that and, and shared that you totally can have a combo of them and just go based on your symptoms. And then of course, definitely seek help. And so I'm just curious, as you were speaking, it just got me to thinking, where does anxiety start? So can it start from a traumatic experience? Or is it more of an accumulation of small things over time? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, really, really good question. So I have a bit of a different perspective on anxiety, because I think that it doesn't necessarily start anywhere. I think we have anxiety as part of our human brain right? It's a, it's a built-in mechanism that we've evolved to have. Because if you think back to our cave woman ancestors, um, if they didn't have anxiety, they'd literally die. Like they, like if you didn't, if you weren't worried that maybe there'd be a saber tooth outside of your cave and like you wandered out and got eaten, like there's no more you. Right. And so, so you, we evolved the, in the base of our brain, like the brainstem where the, you know, in that lower part of our brain, where the limbic system is, is our survival system. And that doesn't just go away because we now have a beautifully evolved frontal lobe. It's like that still exists. So in truth, we all have anxiety to some degree. It's a part of being human. We need it to stay alive. And we can't have it go away because then we wouldn't, you know, be able to run if we see, you know, a car coming and we might get hit. Like we need it to actually keep ourselves alive. When we don't need it is when it's almost like it's a sensitized, overly sensitized system where now all of a sudden it's seeing like missing, you know, missing the bus to go to work as a huge threat to our safety or, you know, things that are like day to day stressors that our amygdala and our limbic system is interpreting as like this, oh my God, threat to our safety, right? Or, you know, speaking up for ourselves and setting a boundary now all of a sudden feels like it's this huge threat to our safety. It's because our limbic system, um, is designed to identify potential threats to us. Okay. So, and, and then motivate us to change our behavior to mitigate those threats. So when it becomes more of a problem, right? So some people like my clients, myself, um, maybe some people listening, I refer to having sensitized amygdalas, right? And where do they become sensitized? One, I think that some of us are, uh, have a tendency towards or a predisposition towards having a more sensitized amygdala. I find that a lot in women specifically, not all the time, Um, or in households where there was a lot of focus on achievement and perfection and success and those sorts of things. I do find a lot of women have more of a high functioning anxiety in those situations. Um, If you've ever experienced any form of trauma, which like could be an isolated event or uh, chronic like childhood trauma or, you know, attachment issues as a child that can absolutely trigger your amygdala to be in a more heightened state and cause more severe anxiety for you. If you experience a lot of change, so some women will come to me and be like, I had this, 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 and this. I, you know, I got married, I had a baby, I changed my jobs, and we moved to states. And I'm super anxious. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. Because all that change is absolutely a way that your amygdala becomes a little bit more sensitized because our amygdala, our anxiety doesn't like change. It's like things that are safe, 
It likes things that we know. It likes things we've already survived, right? All those things that we've already survived and been surviving in, those are good places to be. So anytime we do something new, anytime that we change our plans, we go to a new place, we move, we get a job, it's going to trigger the amygdala, right? So it's kind of a kind of a bit of both of what you said. Is it like, are we born with it? Does it have to be one thing or can it be multiple chronic things? And I think that it's looking back in your own history and saying, well, what sort of things have contributed to me maybe having a bit more sensitized amygdala with the sense of understanding rather than fixing, I think that's really important because sometimes as women, we can get on this hunt of like, where was the source of my anxiety? And if I can go back and I can fix that problem, I can remove my anxiety. And I, I kind of caution against that approach because I think it can be a bit futile because there's more to the story of like, oh, you know, I, I moved and I had a baby and that's why I'm anxious and I just need to fix all that and get over it. And now my anxiety will go away. There's usually a little bit more to the story than that. And so I often encourage women to take more of a lifestyle approach to managing their anxiety. Instead of taking it away, how can I learn to walk with it and track it and take care of it and manage it on an ongoing healthy basis so that every time it comes back, it doesn't cripple me. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I like that you said understanding it, managing it rather than going in and trying to fix that because I feel like, especially as women, we're always trying to fix things. And so mm-hmm. rather than going in and yeah, like you said, just just fixing it and you know pinpointing that specific situation, just like you mentioned before, nutrition, exercise, and walking through it, managing it. That mm-hmm. brought up a couple questions. <laughs> Three in particular that brought to my mind, but we'll take it one at a time. So the the last one that just came to my mind was, can you actually cure anxiety or is it something that you just manage for the rest of your life, let's say? I think there's differing perspectives on this. Okay, yeah. My perspective is that you do not cure it unless you give yourself a limbic lobotomy. Do you know what I mean? Like, Like literally, unless you like, can you improve it? Can you get it to the place where it is not bothering you? Yes. Can you live without anxiety for the rest of your life? No, because that would mean that you basically live in a box and never change a single thing in your life. Right. Can you live without the debilitating anxiety? Can you live without the panic attacks? Can you improve them? Yes. Do they kind of peak and pass? Yes. Do they fluctuate based on what's happening in your life? Yes. Does it ever 100% go away? I don't know if I'd want it to, to be honest with you, because I feel like it also is helpful. Like I said, like in some cases we need anxiety. We need it to keep us alive. So can we cure it? I'd say no, personally, from my perspective. Can we improve it and live with it? 100%. I feel like I'm a testament to that. Like my, I, I, I've realized after my postpartum experience that I basically had a, like an anxiety disorder my entire life. It just showed up in different forms. And I talk about this in my book, actually. I talk about how my anxiety was like a shapeshifter that kind of morphed and fit into my life in different ways. And, you know, when I was in university, it was like that high achieving perfectionistic anxiety that led me towards success and made sure I repeat, you know, completed all my reports and did really well on my tests and got all the good grades, but that's no different than anxiety itself, right? When I was a kid, I, it was social anxiety. It was more like, oh, I don't know if I fit into this group or how do I be more of them so that I can be less of me so that I can fit in with them. That's social anxiety in, in a nutshell kind of idea, right? And so to answer your question, I don't know. I think there's some people in mental health who believe you can completely cure it. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you said that it can kind of come and go and shape shift and that 
you wouldn't want to get rid of it because just as you were talking, it made me think that it can be helpful in certain situations. Like when you are, let's say, put in a difficult compromising situation, then of course, anxiety can come up, but, you know, always trust that gut feeling and that can kind of guide you into going in the right direction. And of course, we're always going to be presented with, with something because like you said, change happens and, you know, going into, let's say an interview or something like that, you know, doing a, a, a Ted talk, let's say there's going to be some thoughts that come up, but they don't necessarily always have to be bad. Right. And you mentioned high functioning anxiety. I would mm-hmm. love it if you could walk us through that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, high functioning anxiety. <laughs> I think probably a lot of your listeners, I think maybe even you, like right, a lot of us who are doing things in the public eye have high functioning anxiety because we're achievement focused, right? We're achievement focused, we're productivity driven, we like to be organized. We are probably closet perfectionists or open perfectionists depending on, you know, our comfort level with that. Um, we've usually women with or people with high functioning anxiety usually have it all together on the outside. They have, you know, they, they look like they have this great career and they're just killing it everywhere. And then on the inside, they're like crushed with paralyzing anxiety in terms of, I need to continue to show up this way. What will people think if I'm not perfect? What will people think if I mess up or have a bad day? And how can I hold myself to even more rigorous standards so that that never happens? Right? And high-functioning anxiety doesn't impact necessarily um, like the, I guess the low functioning anxiety, like the high functioning part is the fact that you're still doing your life. Right. But like a a severe anxiety disorder, you probably can't still go out and like, sometimes people with really severe anxiety disorders can't even leave their house to get groceries because they're so terrified of walking out their door. Right. So that's, that's like a very stark difference between somebody who has not all the time. That's not everybody with anxiety, but the more severe forms of it. Yeah. Like I've seen people who can't even get themselves out of bed because their anxiety is so terrible, right? And in contrast, somebody with high-functioning anxiety, like I said, it looks like it's all fine on the outside. Like you can do your job and you can drive and go to work and you can do all the things that you need to do. um, But on the inside, it's a different story and you feel paralyzed all the time and you feel like you're trapped in this kind of rigorous box of this life that you wanted and created, but feels like you can't let anybody down. You feels like you can't ever drop a ball. Feels like you always have to be what you've created, in a sense. Mm-hmm. So many of those hit home with me so hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's by no means like a book definition of high achieving anxiety, but it's what I, as a high achieving anxiety professional, um, you know, it's what I see in myself and what I've felt before, and how um, and how you can absolutely work with those thoughts and and kind of unlearn a lot of those habits because anxiety is something in our brain. It's a process that exists already in our brain, but it can also become a habit. It can become a habit of our brains. It can become something that we automatically believe and listen to, if that makes sense. One of the most pivotal moments of working with your brain and mental health is, is if you can understand and remember that what your brain tells you does not ever mean it's fact. And if you can identify that the thoughts that your brain is spewing out at you could potentially be wrong, they could just be the product of a habit. They could be the product of an old program like perfectionism that you picked up. They could be the product of a childhood attachment trauma. They could be the product of all these things, but not necessarily true and accurate responses to what's happening in your life. That's where the, the money is. 
right, of, of dealing with your anxiety, that's when you start to realize like, wait a minute, I'm actually not those thoughts. Those thoughts are my brain creating creating like, you know, stories and telling me things to try to keep me safe, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually threats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You make a totally great point that, you know, we have, sometimes we have these really weird and irrational thoughts and just knowing that that's not true in all cases. And sometimes these thoughts can just come and go. And as you were speaking to, it just made me think about the question of technology and so I'm curious to hear your your thoughts because I saw a post recently on social media and I went and read the comments and a lot of younger people, probably teens, and so I wouldn't want to call them kids necessarily, but they were saying that their parents are saying that their anxiety and depression is coming from their phone and their technology and social media. And a lot of these teens were saying it's actually not and that their phone makes them feel comfortable and less alone. So it just got me thinking, it's so interesting that, you know, for me, I know for certain that social media does heighten some of that, but at the same time, it can sometimes make me feel less alone. So I'm curious to see your thoughts Mm -hmm. on all this. Love this question. So just like you asked me to define mental health, I think even this, there's no way to give us one right or wrong answer. I think it's that having an an understanding of what impacts your mental health is what's fundamentally important. So if you have the perspective and the, and the insights and the awareness of your own mental health to identify that when you're going onto social media or onto your technology device, checking in with yourself and seeing how you feel when, before, and after you are doing that and seeing like, does this actually help me or not? Does this actually harm me? right? There you'll find your answer. And I actually, it's funny that you asked this because not that long ago, I think it was about, well, maybe it was maybe 18 months ago now. I kind of did like a social media experiment with myself because I started to notice that when I was, you know, on Instagram scrolling, all of a sudden I just had these feelings of not enoughness and you're not doing enough and your stuff's not good. And what are you, imposter syndrome and, and feeling down and feeling bad about myself. And I was like, that's not typically my style. Like, of course I have imposter syndrome, but that's not typically the style of my, my typical thoughts. So I said to myself, well, you know what, let's take some time off of social media and see how it goes. And so I remember I only had to do it literally one day and the results were very clear for myself. And so I took a Sunday and I didn't even look at my phone like at all from the morning till about about five o'clock. And I remember that day being so enjoyable, so um, unburdened, I felt more so than I had in, in that in the surrounding weeks. And, um, and what was more stark, yes, I had a great day. I can't tell you even what I did because it I don't know. It was probably just regular life, right? Like was with my kids, et cetera. Um, But it was a great day. And it was until I put my kids to bed, we had had dinner, everything. I said, well, let's just see what happens. And so I flipped up and flipped open. <laughs> like it's a flip phone. It's not, I turned on my phone um, and I, and I looked at social media and it was like, I was practicing a lot of mindfulness skills at the time too, to make sure I was like, Hey, what's evolving in my body? What is the experience I'm having? What's coming in as I do this? And Alex, it was like within five to seven minutes, those like very clear feelings of doubt, comparison, self-guessing or self-second guessing, um, self-criticism, lacking of self-confidence, all that, all, it came rushing back like instantly almost. And I was like, holy smokes. Like that was crazy how powerful it was. And I, you know, it, so once I turned to my phone and I realized how, 
those emotions followed almost immediately afterwards. I started to become really more uh, intentional about my social media use. Right. And, you know, shutting off notifications and making sure that I was, you know, trying to limit myself to when I checked it. So around that time, I started setting really firm boundaries with myself around like, let's not expose my brain to that first thing in the morning, or let's not expose my brain to that right before bed as an anxious brain. I don't need anything else to stress my brain out before bedtime, you know? And so it's like, let's be smart about our usage. And because you're right, it can be a double-edged sword. I also absolutely love social media because of the community it creates. It can create, right? If you're in the right spaces, if you have the right people, if you're in the right um, programs or whatever it is, you can create an incredible sense of community, which is absolutely invaluable for mental health, right? A sense of social connection is one of our most fundamental needs as human beings. And especially during the pandemic, Social media had become a lot of our only source of social connection. So I hesitate to give a like, yes, it's terrible for you. But I think we have to be wise and intentional about how we use it. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I loved how you said, check in with yourself. Is this helping or harming? And I feel like that's something that a lot of us don't do because we're just so numb. And now we've trained our brains. The second we open our phone, our thumbs just automatically click that Instagram button or that TikTok button or whatever social media you're on. It's just kind of habit that we're so into. So instead kind of breaking that pattern and just checking in with yourself before you open the app and just say, is this helping or hurting me today? Am I already experiencing... a a higher anxiety day, maybe it's not the best time to go on social media. And so you hit on so many good points there. Yeah. And sorry, I just, I I think it's, um, it's how am I feeling today? And, um, and even further to that, what is driving me to pick up my phone right now? Because the truth is, that social media, scrolling on Instagram, those fast TikTok videos, they're, it's literally designed to stimulate a dopamine response in our brain. So it feels good to see the next thing, 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 right? And so because we have this readily available form of basically that's dopamine is the source of addiction as well in part. Um, and so we basically have this like readily available source of dopamine hits in our hand. It's like, if I'm reaching for my phone, why am I doing that? Because is there something else I need in my life right now? Do I need genuine social connection in person? Do I need to reach out to a friend? Do I need to eat something? Do I need to journal? Do I need to meditate? Like what, what am I, what, what gap am I trying to fill right now? Sometimes it's just boredom and there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it's like, I don't want to feel what I'm feeling right now. I don't want to feel the emotion of anxiety. I'd rather shut my brain off and I'll just scroll because I can't handle that. So being really mindful about what are you doing it for, (laughs) because I think that's really important. Oh, definitely. I know avoidance behaviors are huge with with my clients and they bring that up all the time. Just that numbing feeling of going on social media or, you know, going on Netflix or something like that just to completely avoid emotions. And yeah, yeah, sometimes I feel like if you're working with someone as well, like yourself and, and working with a therapist to give you tools so that you can sit with those uncomfortable emotions. And um, I'm curious before we, because I want to save some time as well to talk about some some more treatment options and, and things like that, like CBT, but uh, something just came to mind as you were speaking. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on exposure therapy. 
Hmm, that's a good question. I haven't been asked for a while. Um, okay, so it depends on what you were speaking about, right? So exposure therapy can be useful when done in the right therapeutic setting. Exposure therapy, for those people who don't know what that is, it's basically like if you have an identified anxiety trigger, um, sometimes it's used in post-traumatic stress disorder, sometimes it's used in phobias. Um, you know, if you have a trigger of something that is reliably causing you distress, anxiety, panic attacks, whatever, um, it's that we kind of very gently and gradually expose you to it more and more and more so that you can kind of get comfortable with it. Now, this is going to be a bit of a detailed conversation, so I'm not going to go too much into detail. So in things outside of things like true post-traumatic stress disorder and complex PTSD, like if it's a simple phobia or it's it's something that you just picked up that all of a sudden you're feeling anxious about and you want to expose to it, absolutely it can be helpful in the context of the right therapist who knows what they're doing. Um, In the sense of people with like, say, complex PTSD, which one of their coping mechanisms is what's called dissociation. Um, a lot of the researchers and experts in complex PTSD and PTSD therapy say that exposure therapy is only re-triggering a lot of the defense mechanisms that these people are already struggling with. So in those settings, I would say probably not. And I won't go much into that much more, but um, I would encourage anybody who's interested in like, what the heck is she talking about? Go and read for yourself, right? Like something like Bessel van der Kolk or something like that, who talks about PTSD. Um, Because in some cases, exposure therapy only serves to re-traumatize, to traumatize nervous system. And that's not cool. So, but now in that sense, exposure therapy can also look like, and I use this super often with my clients, is identifying something that your brain is telling you is a threat when you're like, I don't really think that's actually a threat. Like, I think I still want to do that thing. Like, you know, for example, setting boundaries is a good one. If you're not accustomed to setting boundaries in relationships and it makes you feel like you're sweating and you have palpitations just talking about it, but you're like, I also know that setting a boundary in this toxic relationship will be good for me, right? This is an, a situation where your um, your threat your threat response is almost in direct core like um, conflict with your executive functioning, like what you think is better for yourself, right? And and so in this sort of situation, we sometimes do need to expose ourselves to that threatening behavior, to that scary thing in little increments to show our brain, our limbic system, which has the ability to learn, to show it that it's not as big of a threat as it believes it to be. Okay. Another simple way to explain this is like exposure therapy can work really well. For example, say you have, as a child, you were bit by a dog. And now as an adult, you actually really love dogs, but you still have this fear response every time you go near a dog. That's because your limbic system learned from painful past experiences that dogs are threats. And so your amygdala has said like, red flag, that's a threat. We shouldn't go near that. That's not safe for us. Okay. But your smart thinking brain is like, but I really want to be close to dogs. Like I want to love dogs, you know? And so, so one way that exposure therapy can work in this case is that not only do we jungle birds, not only do we, um, do we, you know, need to expose you to dogs, but we need to actually give your limbic system the idea that like, not only are dogs not threats, but dogs can actually be associated with really positive emotions. Right. So that now it relearns. And the limbic system does have the ability to relearn. And that's kind of the basis of exposure therapy and a really long drawn out answer to what you asked me. But um, but it can work in the right person with the right therapist with the right symptoms. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I Yeah, for I love that you mentioned the, the boundaries and that's a whole other podcast we Ooh, could do. Is it, uh, is it ever? Yeah, exactly. I'm actually doing a mini course right now on boundaries um, right now. So that's kind of why it came to mind for me. But 
Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, that's totally something we can can link in the show notes. And I want to spend some time as well talking about quote unquote treatment. I know it's not necessarily treatment therapies, but um, ways that we can manage anxiety. And and I know you said that you recommend cognitive behavioral therapy and um, and nutrition and exercise. So I'll let you start wherever mm-hmm. you want to start with something that you feel like really moves the needle for either yourself or your clients. Sure. Big topic again. Um, okay. So yeah, I, I, I would say I have skills of CBT. Do I think that CBT is the only and best therapy? No. I think that an eclectic approach to therapy, if we're speaking about therapy specifically as a treatment modality, right? Because in terms of treatment modalities, we can look at so many different things, like you just said. And I usually look at the pillars. I actually define this as the Anoya approach in my book. And it's like, we look at the pillars of your biology, your psychology, and your social life, your social interactions, right? Because we can find treatment options that are in all of those pillars. So if we look at the psychology pillar for the sake of speaking about therapy, therapy is one of our tools in our toolbox that we can use. I would say it's definitely one of the more powerful ones for really kind of reprogramming some of the older habits that we have that are causing us to have mental health symptoms. If we were to look at treatment options and therapy being one of them, then within therapy, in, in the therapy components, there's lots of different types of therapy, right? And so cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is one of them. Dialectical behavioral therapy, also known as DBT, is another one. Then there's like lots of others. So there's like solution-focused therapy. There's emotion-focused therapy. There's trauma therapy, which is a whole school of its own. There's somatic-based and body therapies. There's yoga therapy. There's breathwork. All these are different kinds of treatment modalities, And I really love a lot of them. (laughs) Like I'm a very multifaceted eclectic therapist. And so I really love a lot of them. And I wouldn't say that one necessarily is going to be superior in all aspects for all people. And so this brings to light that, yes, I think therapy is probably one of the most powerful tools we have to heal all mental health concerns in the realm of anxiety and depression. But it's important to, again, find a therapist who uses a modality or who is flexible in modalities that actually is effective for you, right? Because if I were to sit here and be like, CBT is going to fix everything, that's a blatant lie, right? Because CBT will not fix things that are coming from the nervous system like a trauma response because you can't think your way out of a trauma response and cognitive behavioral therapy works on thoughts, right? If, if the primary issue is emotional regulation, right? Like you can't tolerate feeling distress in your body and you're having emotional reactions, mm, CBT probably isn't going to be for you. You're going to need more of dialectical behavioral therapy, which teaches skills of mindfulness and emotional regulation and distress tolerance, right? The other thing that's, I think, important in this conversation is that the patient doesn't need to know what they need, (laughs) okay? That's not your job as a patient to be like, this is what I'm dealing with exactly. These are the words, and this is the therapy I need, right? I would encourage you to find a therapist who feels comfortable with multiple different strategies so that they can apply them when they see that it would be effective for you, right? So, I mean, that's kind of the answer specifically about treatment options. I think we could do like an hour long podcast about all the other treatment options. That's specifically therapy and a really brief, albeit brief uh, summary of even therapy in itself. But, um, but yeah, there is so much more to it, right? Cause then we can look at, you know, things like what you do, like hormone health, super important for mental health, you know, balancing gut health, super important for mental health. And how do we do that through food? That's kind of like the, the new field of nutritional psychiatry, which has lots of research 
to support, which is not new <laughs> new ideas, but now we at least have medical research to support them, um, you know, that making diet changes can make a huge impact on our mental health, right? We knew that. I feel like a lot of people knew that for a really long time, but now we're finally getting medical data to support it, which is great. Um you know, and, uh, and so there's like just so many other things. Then we haven't even touched on things like medications and psychotherapeutics and how they play a role. And, um, which I actually love that we didn't talk about that because I think sometimes mental health gets overshadowed by that people thinking they just have to go on meds or thinking that doctors will just put them on meds and that that's the only way that granted, sometimes that's the only way that other doctors do know how to treat mental illness, but you know, we're trying to change that conversation because not everybody needs meds. And in some people, meds can be a complete game changer. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there there's so many things I loved that you touched on there. And like you said, all these treatment modalities could be a, a whole hour <laughs> in and of itself. And I know there's so many other questions that I wanted to ask you, Carly, but I also want to be mindful of your time and that your your two twin girls and your husband just got back from the pool. So I'll ask <laughs> you just a couple more questions and then I'll let you go. Sure. So I'm just curious. Do you have a trick that someone can do, and I'll, I'll um, make it anxiety specific, that someone can do in about a minute or less? For anxiety? Oh, yes. yes. Depends on, yeah. So, I mean, to get us out of a thought spiral, for example, I always say we need to get um, out of the body and we need to give the brain something to do. So one thing you could keep in mind anytime your brain is doing something that you don't like is that your brain can only do one thing at one time. Okay. We cannot, in fact, multitask. Um, our, even though we think we can multitask, our brains cannot multitask. They literally have no wiring to do so. So if your brain is doing something that you don't like, i.e. worrying, ruminating, thinking ridiculous thoughts, you need to give it something else to do. So that could look like bring yourself into your body with a really simple grounding exercise. If you've ever heard of like the five senses exercise, which is five things I can see, four things I can hear, three things I can feel, two things I can smell, one thing I can taste, right? What that does is it interrupts the brain's ability to ruminate and think and worry. And it also focuses us out of the story in the brain and all the stuff that's going on up there into the experience that we're having in our physical body and can interrupt an anxiety cycle. And that can easily be done in under a minute. Mm-hmm. That is perfect. I love the the five senses example. And one last question for you before we share where everyone can find you and connect with you. But the, there's a question that I, I always ask at the end. And so that is, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you just absolutely love to share with everyone? Oh, man. How long do we have? No, I mean, there's a lot of things. I, I, I love, I absolutely love the brain, but what I love even more beyond the brain is, um, helping women really reclaim choosing themselves. Okay. That is basically at the bottom or the core, if we were to say of what I work with women on, through mental health therapy, through coaching that I do, through courses, all these different things that I offer. It's like at the bottom, we have to come back home to ourselves at the core of wellness. We have to come back home to ourselves and we need to start choosing ourselves because when we start choosing ourselves and people are like, what does that mean? It means like, like Glennon Doyle says in Untamed, when given the opportunity to disappoint somebody else versus yourself, disappoint others every time. And I think that that truly is one of the most powerful pathways that we get to wellness and like embodying our true selves is when we can love ourselves unconditionally and choose ourselves and know ourselves. 
that's probably what I would share as one of my most fundamental mental health strategies is that if you're sacrificing your needs for someone else all the time, you will not feel well. If you're making choices that are not yours because somebody else expects something of you and it doesn't really feel like aligned, you will not feel well. And in fact, your anxiety will tell you. So that's a whole podcast episode in itself too, is how your anxiety is actually an ally a lot of the time is that your anxiety is going to tell you sometimes where things are not meant for you, right? Like that toxic relationship that you need to set boundaries in and it makes you really anxious being around that person. It's because your anxiety is like red flag. We got to do something here, right? So it's listening to yourself and choosing yourself. That's probably what I would share. Oh, that's so perfect. What a good way to, to end off. And uh, awesome. where, where can everyone find you? Are you more on Instagram? Um, I know you have a website and a book and a podcast. So share all yeah. of those with us. Yeah. So I do have all that. So uh, easiest way to find most of my stuff is at curlycrew.com. My name is spelled like the crew of a ship, but with an E on the end. So C-R-E-W-E. My main social platform is Instagram for sure. I share uh, my kind of family travels on there and also lots of mental health content. And then in terms of offerings, I obviously have my Mind Over Motherhood podcast, which is not just for mothers. It's absolutely designed to support women in general, but um, but it started as a motherhood podcast. And so that's a really awesome jam-packed uh, place where you can find lots of great interviews as well as solo episodes with me yamming on about things. Um, and then I do have a book. So it is on curlycrew.com as well as Amazon and something like 39,000 online retailers. Uh, it's called You Are Not Your Anxiety, How to Stop Being an Anxious People-Pleasing Mess. And it is a comprehensive, albeit it's a very thick book that I wrote um, and just released in July of this year. That is my manual for, for managing your anxiety. And then I have a mental health program that is a mental health membership community for women um, that releases a monthly mini course each month on a high yield topic, as well as supports you with a really forward focused and positive community of women all working on their mental health in a positive way. And then I have my clinic, right? So you're in the US. So my, you know, I'm a medical I'm, clinic. I'm in Canada. Sorry. Oh, pardon me. I'm yeah. sorry. You're in Toronto. Sorry. Are you in Toronto? Yes. yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually this applies then. So um, my clinic in Alberta um, can see patients across Canada. The catch is that we cannot um, see them through their healthcare. So in Alberta, we can build the Alberta Health government um, for or the, the government for our services for patients who have Alberta healthcare. So if you're listening to this and you have Alberta healthcare, you can access services through myself or one of my 11 doctors for mental health support through Unoya Medical. If you are a uh, out of province patient or a, from another province in Canada, you can still access our services. They're just private pay. And I actually have quite a few private pay clients from Ontario. So that's also an option. And you can find out more details about that on my website and in, on curlycrew.com or unoyamedical.ca. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I just want to extend some gratitude and um, appreciation and just let you know how much I appreciate your time, especially, you know, since you're in Mexico and you have your beautiful children. And so thank you so much for being on and sharing all this good stuff. Oh, no, thank you for having me, Alex. This was really lovely. And I hope that it was valuable. And if anybody has questions or wants to dive in a little bit more about any of the stuff I've talked about, I'm, I'm pretty readily available on Instagram. So feel free to reach out. And it's been a real honor and a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did with Dr. Carly Crew. I learned so much about mental health and 
I learned a lot of little tips and tricks, so I hope you do as well. And of course, thank you so much for listening in. If you liked this episode, feel free to share it with a friend. You can subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. And for more health, wellness, and lifestyle tips, you can always come say hi to me on Instagram. I'm at Nutrition Moderation or online at nutritionmoderation.com. I hope you have an amazing day wherever you are, and I'll talk with you soon.